verses 1 to 8. And as we do that, I want to raise some questions and just let the text itself answer them. Because I think you'll find there is something here that is going to prepare us for what we will find in Revelation 20. Isaiah 11, in verse 1, prophetically states that the day will come when there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay, who or what is that branch that will grow from the roots of Jesse? Let's read on. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, or decide by the hearing of his ears. In other words, he won't judge by merely outward appearances of sight or sound, but he will judge with righteousness. He will judge according to the facts of the case. Because with righteousness, he shall judge the poor, uh, meaning he will judge on their behalf for their benefit, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And that's the people who never get a fair hearing in court. Uh, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Let's pause there. Who is the branch from the roots of Jesse? Yes, Jesus Christ. Clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And verse 4 gives us a way to orient ourselves chronologically to the time period that is referred to here when it speaks of his striking the earth with his mouth and slaying the wicked with the breath of his lips. I mean, when is that going to happen? Well, we've already seen the fulfillment of that in Revelation 19, just before the chapter we're looking at today, where it says in verse 15 that when the Messiah returns on a white horse, he will have something in his mouth with which he will strike the wicked. And the imagery there is a sharp two-edged sword. That sword will slay the confederacy of the Antichrist. And this passage clarifies that event when it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. In other words, his mouth itself is the rod. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In other words, uh, this is teaching that when the Lord comes for the second time and deals with the armies of the Antichrist at Armageddon, he will deal with them using nothing more than his naked, sharp word. He will speak the word and he will decimate his enemies. With the breath of his lips, it says, he will slay them. That is the sharp, two-edged sword of Revelation 19.15. So those two lines at the end of verse 4 orient us chronologically by connecting us to the Messiah's activity at the very end 
of the tribulation. Well, what's next? Well, it's Revelation 20. And the next verses in Isaiah really describe what happens next in this sequence of events. Let's read on. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Look at the incompatibility of that. you got wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, calves and young lions. I mean, normally this would be a bloodbath, right? It'd be a smorgasbord for the wolf, the leopard, and the lion. And yet here they are completely compatible. And a little child shall lead them. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that also orients us chronologically, because there's never been a time in history when the earth was full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters actually cover the sea. That is coming in the future. So these verses are clearly pointing ahead to the time immediately following the Great Tribulation, time that Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, is referring to the time that lasts for 10 centuries. We call it the millennium. Now, what I'm interested in, then, is the presence of little children in the millennium, in verse 6, and nursing children and weaned children in verse 8. Because what I want to know is, where do those little children come from? Well, the fact is that during the millennium, there will be marriages. Not everyone who exists on the earth during the millennial period is a glorified person. Now, the returning church of Jesus Christ is glorified. That's us. And then you have resurrected saints from the Old Testament and they will be glorified. But then the nations of the earth, you remember, will be sorted out at the judgment that our Lord talks about in Matthew 25. And to some of those Gentiles, he will say, enter into the kingdom prepared for you by my Father. And those are non-glorified people. You also see a third of the nation of Israel enter the millennial kingdom. Two-thirds of them will be killed during the tribulation. We saw that already. But there will be a remaining third when our Lord returns. And Zechariah says, at that time, a fountain of cleansing will be opened for them. And Israel will be saved in a day. But those are non-glorified Jews who will enter the millennial period. And some of them will marry. Some of them will undoubtedly be married at the time they enter the millennium and they will bear children. So generations of children will be born during those 10 centuries. Now, how many people will be on the earth during that time? Of course, nobody can begin to estimate that, but uh, we know that uh, today for every 40 people who die tonight, somewhere in the world, there will be 100 who are born. Those are the rates, and Earth's population is increasing at a rate 
of over 80 million people a year in spite of the death rate. So what will the millennial population be if every single year increases the population by 80 million and it does so for a thousand years? Now, of course, we don't know the population at the start of the millennium, but we do know that there will be the absence of many diseases that affect us today. Uh, Isaiah 65.20 says that in those days when someone dies at 100 years old, he'll be considered a youth when he dies. So evidently, there will be the return of conditions similar to those that were on the earth before the flood when people lived for centuries. When you have that kind of longevity and very little disease and very little infant mortality and no abortions and generation and generation of people marrying and bearing children, and this goes on for century after century after century, the population must become quite large. And all of those babies who are born are born in what condition? They're born fallen, with a sin nature, just like we were born. Now, there's a number of evidences in Scripture for that. One evidence is what we saw at the end of Zechariah when we are told that it will be required for the nations to come up once a year to worship the Lord in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Then it refers to nations that refuse to do that. God will have to deal with them. How do you explain their refusal except that you're dealing with fallen humanity? I also mentioned Isaiah 65.20, which talks about people dying during the millennium who are nevertheless at least a century old and considered to be young people. Well, death is the penalty for what? Well, it explains this, right? Romans 5 that there would be no death if there was no sin. He says, sin entered into the world by one man. It was passed to all men, for all have sinned. He's explaining the universality of death in terms of the fact that people, all people, sinned in Adam. So all of these little children will be born as we were born, with a sin nature. Now, the environment into which they will be born will be the most perfect that has existed on earth ever since the Garden of Eden. You read the descriptions of it and consider the fact that the Messiah himself will be reigning, along with the fact that you will have the presence of glorified people at the same time, people who are incapable of sinning, and existing at the same time with fallen people. When you consider all of that, you have the dynamics for a beautiful environment. In addition to that, when you consider that the desert blossoms as a rose, which is how you feed an immense population, if anybody was wondering, and that the wild animals actually have a change of appetite and eat grass instead of other animals. And everybody can earn and keep what they earn, which the Bible describes as sitting under your own fig tree and having your own produce. It is going to be a blessed period of time. And people will live long enough to enjoy it for a long time. 
mean, it's almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? Like, I can hardly imagine that. I agree. When you take the passages literally, that is precisely what they describe. And we have gone through the reasons why God does this and how he uses that period of time. We went through that uh, in the past. But here's what else happens. Apparently, many of those people will live in conformity to the government of God, but they will never really give their hearts to the Lord. Now, that's remarkable when you consider that the millennium is actually going to bring together the best of both the Old and the New Testament worlds. Under the Old Covenant, God intended that His people live under a theocracy. God was to be their king. When they asked for a king, He said to them, I'm your king. Right? So what would it be like then to have the Lord Himself in the person of the Messiah on the earth as the head of state. And then you have the law. It's going to be there, like you see in the Old Testament, which Paul says in Romans 7 is holy and just and good. So imagine living in a society under the government of the Messiah himself and the law of every nation is the holy, just, and good law of God. But, on the other side of the cross, people will universally have access to the gospel. To the news that God saves sinners whose hearts are not in keeping with that law. So you have this period of time that includes the best of both covenants combined with the presence of the Lord. And yet, you will still have masses of people right to the end who will not really give their heart to the Lord in that environment. Now, I think we can understand this to some degree. Uh, there's hardly any place on earth that is more conducive to people's benefit and blessing than a good, solid Christian home or a local church like this that preaches and practices the truth. And yet, in the best of Christian upbringings and in any good local church, there are still people who simply refuse to give their heart to the Lord. You have a similar setting in a Christian school. There are students who attend every day, five days a week, and the presence of the Lord is in that school. And the teachers are godly Christian people. But some students will walk away after 12 grades of Christian influence in their education and even four more years of a Christian university and never really give their heart to the Lord. And yet in all three environments, you can't always tell who is who, can you? So what will it be like at the end of those 10 centuries when you have an earth of mixed conditions, a vast population that is coerced in some degree to conform and submit, and yet the presence of many, many of those people who have never been truly regenerated. I mean, in spite of all the blessings they have enjoyed, in spite of the reality of the Lord's presence, they're still holding out when it comes to giving themselves to God. What is going to happen eventually with that kind of tension existing? 
That brings us to Revelation 20, 7 to 10. So let's look at that. And here is the wisdom of God and what he is going to do. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. If you want to know how many will take his side, it says, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This morning I want to preach to you on a season of revealing hearts. Verse 3 refers to a little while or a short time. And the message in these verses is that this little while is a revelatory time. In the wisdom of God, it is being designed to sort out the situation as I have described it in the introduction. It is the ultimate season of revealing, of exposing hearts. So first of all, look at verses 7 and 8, and let's see what God is going to do in order to reveal things as they are. According to those verses, He's going to once again offer the alternative to being ruled by Jesus Christ. He will make available to all mankind an alternative to being ruled by Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, you know, for 10 centuries, nobody has had any option but that one, right? That's it. He will judge in righteousness. The law will be enforced. Those who fail to come up and worship, they're going to be dealt with. You have one option during the millennium. But this little season at the end of that thousand-year period will give the alternative. And it is the same option that has been there since the beginning of human history. It's the only other option. In other words, scripturally speaking, in passages like 1 John, people are either the children of God or they are the children of the wicked one. No, no neutrality. Nobody's neutral. Those are the only two historical options. But one of them is removed and impossible to follow in the millennium. Well, the other one has ruled and all of his benefits have been enjoyed. But now, for a short season, God is going to make it possible for people to go the other way because Satan is going to be paroled. Verse 7 speaks of him being released from prison. He's given a reprieve, and he will evidently be given unlimited access to the nations of the earth. And verse 8 tells you exactly what he will do when that time comes. He will, number one, come out for the express purpose of deception. Now that's how he began his earthly career in the garden. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 11, when he refers to the fact that the serpent deceived Eve. Well, he's been doing that pretty successfully for all of human history to this point. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, his purpose will be to deceive the nations again 
And the reason he does that is found in the second expression in verse 8. Let me connect them together. It says, He will go out to deceive the nations, to gather them together to battle. His ultimate intention is to mobilize and galvanize them for hostility and opposition to God. And with that in mind, he deceives them. Now what becomes apparent then is that this season is revealing the devil as well. If you can imagine, after a thousand years of confinement in a black, smoky, bottomless pit, nothing changes in him. He resorts straight to character. He goes back to exactly the same tricks that he began with in the Garden of Eden. He's like a hardened criminal spending most of his life behind bars for murder and tax collectors spending millions to keep him locked up in a maximum security facility for decade after decade, hoping that time will rehabilitate him. And when he's released, he goes out and picks up right where he left off and murders somebody else. Exactly the situation. The devil has not been rehabilitated. Nothing has changed in him whatsoever. And nothing could make it more clear that he is incurably corrupt. He is totally and radically depraved. I mean, how do you explain the fact that he is attempting to gather the nations together to make war against the Son of God after his last experience of that failing miserably at Armageddon a thousand years earlier. How do you explain that? In other words, have you ever sat there and wondered why Satan doesn't just simply surrender and cry out for the mercy of God? Why doesn't he do that? But the only explanation is that he is simply rabid. He he is not merely diseased, he is deranged. He's He's like Hitler in the bunker at the end of World War II, dressing up German boys in uniform and sending them out to do battle, as if he still has a chance to win. Like, dude, it's over. Let it go. Give up. But he can't. The devil simply does not have it within him to voluntarily surrender. Ezekiel 28 says that his wisdom, his discernment of right and wrong, was corrupted. So this short season after the millennium from the standpoint of God is designed to expose and make clear to all of creation that what you're dealing with is a fallen spirit who is simply incurable. Not even 10 centuries in prison reforms him. Now that brings us to verse 9 and the fact that when he goes out to deceive the nations, people now will have the opportunity to choose sides. In verses 7 and 8, God makes available the alternative to being ruled by Christ. And in verse 9 now, the people of the earth have the opportunity to choose to whom they belong. Now, think of the difference between what they have experienced and what the devil has experienced. Satan has experienced unimaginable horror for the last 10 centuries. But what they have been experiencing for the past 10 centuries is paradise. He's in prison. They're in paradise. They've had the ultimate blessing. They've had had utopia that mankind has dreamed about for all of its existence. That's what they've been living in. 
So what will they do now that they have the freedom to choose? Well, what did you do when you finally got your license? And dad handed you the keys to the car and you got to spend all afternoon in it by yourself. What did you do? What did you do when you moved into your first flat? And you had all the options in the world on how to spend your time. What did you do when you got your first laptop or your first smartphone and there was nobody there to restrict where you went on it and what you did on it? In other words, what do you do when all the restraints have been removed? That's the genius of putting people in that circumstance. That reveals something. I mean, don't coerce them. Don't look over their shoulder. But give them the options. And that will expose them. They will tell on themselves by what they choose to do. In this case, we are told that a great number of these people, verse 9, make this choice. They don't merely turn away from Christ. They amass to destroy God's people. In other words, they don't just turn away and tolerate them. They don't sit back and try to live in a world that allows for two different viewpoints. No, theirs is an aggressive hostility. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain the vast numbers of people who are going to do that? Look at verse 8. How many are going to do that? Well, just drive down to the beach and start counting the grains of sand. And that's the point. The point is that this is a number nobody can number. It's like the sand of the seashore. So how do you explain this happening after 10 centuries of nothing but blessing from the hand of God in as nearly a perfect environment as you could ever have on the face of the earth in all of history? Well, the answer to that is also found in the sand. I mean, why does that same sand on the beach have a tendency to drift? Why does wood burn? Why do fallen leaves rot? Because it's in their nature. And the only explanation for this situation is that these are fallen people. You know, there are verses in the Bible where God tells us about ourselves and really about all mankind in general. And yet, even as believers, we have some difficulty accepting them as true because it appears to us as if nearly everyone we know is an exception to what God says we are. You may work in an office and around you are you know, 10, 15 cubicles just identical to yours and nearly everyone in there is a lost person. Yet they all work hard and they all come on time to meetings and they're all uh, honest with the company as far as you know. In other words, they all appear to be good people by nature. But here is what the Bible says. It says that every one of those people by nature, has an incurable enmity in his heart against God. Now, we might doubt that when we're joking around together. Uh, it's break time and lunch. We're talking about the footy and about the latest holiday or some purchase that we've just made. But you will see that enmity rise up in them as soon as you bring God 
into the conversation. And especially if you extend any responsibility that they have in their relationship to God. In that moment, you will see it. You'll see people recoil. And if you increase the pressure, if you put them under any obligation, at the very least, they will become irritated with you and many of them will become aggressively antagonistic to your efforts. Some of them will likely complain to your employer. Some of them will cut you off socially like a Bible basher in the office. Why? Because by nature, we are exactly what God says we are. Now, this kind of thing actually happens in churches and even in services like we have here. Everyone understands the experience of being in a service where a specific sin is addressed or uh, a pastor is visiting someone to confront them about their sin. When that moment of confrontation begins, you can detect a shield of resistance that just goes up. That person will often deny or reject or excuse or just simply leave the church rather than deal with the sin. What's the explanation for that? God says it is because people have a natural antagonistic spirit to Him at the roots of their being. By our nature, we are exactly where those crowds were when they cried out to Pilate, we will not have this man to rule over us. Now, what do you do when you have a divinely created circumstance in which the whole earth is controlled by your omnipotent, all-seeing eye, and it is utopian, and yet inside, a lot of those people are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones like the Pharisees? Well, what God is going to do is provide a season of time when those people's nature will be revealed by the choice that they make. And again, their choice is not to simply turn away from the Lord, but because the other alternative is to follow Satan, the choice that they will make is an attempt to exterminate the people of God. Just as those who have followed the devil in all the centuries of human history have tried to wipe out God's people before. Our Lord's explanation for this in His own case is found in John 8. People picked up stones to stone Him to death because you remember He was preaching the truth to them. He explained to them, you know what? The reason you've got stones in your hands is because you are of your father the devil and his lusts you want to do. And He was a murderer from the beginning. When you read the news and someone took someone's life a mass shooting or a domestic violence situation has gone horribly wrong. Well, there's a mass genocide in a small African nation. You should look at that through divine viewpoint. You should trace it right back to the cause. This is happening because people are of their father, the devil. And his lusts they will do. And one of his fundamental lusts is murder. That is the explanation, and that is why these people are responding in the way that they are. In other words, you know, we can hardly imagine a scenario like this after a thousand years of no wars, 
No hunger. No abortion. No euthanasia. No discrimination. No racism. Absolute peace and prosperity universally. But look at this from God's viewpoint. The end of 10 centuries of bliss. Many of these people know nothing but bliss. They didn't go through the tribulation. They didn't live in, in our time with this constant unrest. That's past history. Well, now it's time for a new heavens and a new earth. But before that, time for verses 11 to 14. It's time for the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment, untold numbers of people are going to be condemned eternally. All right, what is going to justify that in the eyes of humanity and angels? Part of what will justify that will be the exposure of men's true nature during this short season. It will be apparent to everyone that man at his roots is radically opposed to the rule of God, even though he has been blessed for centuries. Instead of gratitude, instead of service, when given the chance, man will turn away. He will follow God's adversary. So what is God going to do? Verses 9 and 10, he will respond to those people. He will respond to Satan in terms of their character. In verse 9, the insurrectionists will be destroyed by fire. And you know, God does it in such a way that he doesn't even dignify their effort. He doesn't even show himself. There's no lifting of his hand. The battle is almost a, a, a non-event. He just does what he did so many times before in history. Let me remind you that every one of those historical events is intended to serve as an example for us. I mean, what did he do when the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah went up before him? You know, Jude 7 says that what he did at that time serves as an example for all time of what it's like to suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I mean, if anybody wants to know what, what, what judgment is like, what the future judgment is going to be like. Well, then just God's given us an ultimate object lesson, Sodom and Gomorrah. What did he do when he sent his spokesperson to tell a wicked king, Ahaziah, that he was going to die because he had been uh, seeking Beelzebub, the, you know, the Philistine god of Ekron, instead of turning to the Lord God for his sickness? You remember that uh, Ahaziah uh, was quite upset by that, and he sent uh, a captain with 50 men so we're going to seize Elijah for his insolence. Elijah's sitting on top of a hill, you know. And fire just falls from heaven and incinerates that whole company. That's what that looked like. Ahaziah sends a second company. And those men, in their arrogance, their lack of respect for God and for his servant, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to climb that hill and seize Elijah again. And God sends fire from heaven a second time. Finally, the last guy comes, and you can imagine what he's thinking. He sees all these dead, charred bodies around him, and he pleads with Elijah for mercy. Please, just come on down. We're not going to hurt you. And God said to him, it's okay, Elijah. You can go with this guy. He's a safe one. So he does. Well, what did God do to Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire on the altar? What did God do to the rebels at Mount Sinai? And what will God do in the future to those people? He will do as he has done before, and it will be apparent that he's well justified in his response. In other words, 
This is not a lack of mercy or care at all, but the only response that is in keeping with the character of people who have had every opportunity during the millennial period to truly give their hearts to the gospel. They had the opportunity to see the Savior with their eyes, to fellowship with His blessed people, and yet they will resort to what they are, and so God will deal with them in terms of the incurable nature with which they hate Him and His people. Now, when it comes to Satan himself, I think verse 10 has to be one of the most blessed verses in the Bible. If you've ever felt yourself to be under some kind of demonic attack, you believe the Scripture and what it says about your satanic adversary, this has to be one of the most blessed verses in the Bible. It says that the devil who deceived them, a reminder that you know he doesn't come to overpower and destroy people. He comes to deceive them. We can use them against God. Well, he is going to be hurled into a bottomless lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that will be the end of him. Truly the end. Never again in eternity will any creature ever be subjected to his will. He's gone swallowed up in a lake of fire forever. But it won't be annihilation. And this is one of those passages that teaches the eternal nature of that suffering. Just look at the language, the end of verse 10. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they're not annihilated. It says they will be tormented. And it'll be without relief because it's day and night for eternity. The literal wording there is to the ages of the ages. And that's translated forever and ever in our Bibles. It's to the ages. Think about that. We are in an age, right? The age we are in has been existing for 2,000 years, ever since the ministry of Jesus Christ. But there are ages, plural. And there are pluralities that those ages are part of because it's the ages of the ages. And you can measure them by day and night and it's torment. Really, it is forever. I don't think there's any way that you can consider a passage like this without having your eyes opened to what we are by nature. That little season of revealing is going to expose the fact that neither prison nor paradise can alter people one iota. It alters neither Satan nor people in this case. Either way, you have characters who are hopelessly depraved. So perhaps you've come to understand this about yourself. Perhaps this teaching has passed beyond just general theological truth. And you can apply it to yourself in a real way. Maybe you're thinking about your constant disappointment in yourself your inability to live up to your best expectations. If that truth is finally coming home to you, then what you need to do is cry out to the Lord, not merely to be saved from punishment, but cry out to be saved from yourself. Save me from myself, Lord. It's your corrupt heart that you need saving from. What you need is to be made a new creature in Christ Jesus and thank God that this miracle is, ha is possible. It happens. 
happens whenever someone comes in sincerity. Like the tax collector in the story Jesus told who came to the temple and cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the literal wording, the sinner. Exactly what that poor man cried out. So may the Lord help us to be wise and to learn on the front end from the prophecy about this ultimate revealing season and to know ourselves as God knows us and then to take the only cure that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a child of God today, I want to encourage you with the fact that it is impossible for you to be ultimately deceived. Now, you can be deceived, but you cannot be ultimately deceived by the master deceiver, the devil. There's a hymn that we sing uh, called Now I Belong to Jesus. And all of the first verse, it says, Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him, no power of evil can sever. That's a wonderful assurance, isn't it? You're in Christ. He's paid your debt of sin on the cross. And you are secure for eternity. The only question you need to ask yourself is this. Am I really in the faith? So as we close, I want you to examine yourself today. And I want you to do so by applying this very simple test. When the restraints are removed, because you're alone, or because you're anonymous, you're with people, but nobody really knows you, or, or you're online, or maybe you have some new freedom available to you. When the restraints are removed, what is it that you really give yourself to? What do you find yourself habitually anticipating doing or being? You know, true Christian people are able to sincerely pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but rescue me from evil. And if they give in to temptation, they are bitterly disappointed because that's not what they wanted to do. But people who do not really genuinely know the Lord, they've never really been changed inside. They anticipate, they long for, they look for, those opportunities when all restraints, all accountability is gone, and then they resort to character, to their nature. Now, if that is habitually the case, if this is really what your heart wants to do, that's when you're most fulfilled. That, my friend, is revelatory. Parents, if you have a child and your child is habitually governed by your constraints, your rules. But when they are removed, he or she almost immediately resorts to everything other than what you taught them. Even what your child professes to be, that is revelatory. That is exposing something about their heart. If you see it year after year, you're probably dealing with an unregenerated son or daughter. Now, That, I know, is a hard thing for us to accept because you remember when they prayed that prayer at your bedside one night. You remember all the Bible verses they memorized. You remember the decision they made at Sunday school. But the fact is, unless there is true 
iron-fisted rules imposed upon them, then they drift. And there's nothing in them that holds them back. That is revelatory. How many people do you think will stand before the Lord in that moment when their mask will be ripped off? What's obvious from our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount is that many of those people will be absolutely shocked. They will be shocked that they're being left out. I mean, they're claiming, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. But the measurement is this, when our Lord said, no, no, you were a worker of iniquity. I mean, your default mode in life was wickedness. Did that not tell you something about your heart? Didn't that tell you I didn't know you? First John clearly says, this is how you know the children of God and the children of the wicked one. He says the children of God, well, they don't do wickedness. And they don't avoid it because they're trying to earn their salvation, but they also are resorting to character. They do what they are. They are righteous. They are the changed children of God. That is their character. I mean, yes, they can sin, but it's the last thing they really want to do. So today, examine yourself. Not just in light of something that may have happened yesterday or today. I mean, maybe you fell recently. I don't know. But examine yourself about what is habitual with you. If you feel that this message is really unsettling your profession of faith, then you need to sort through that now while there still is time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of your word that pricks our hearts and our consciences. And we thank you for an understanding of what you will do in the future. Lord, you are just, you are good, you will always do what is right. Enable us to follow your Son, be obedient to his commands, and confirm in our hearts that we truly are your children by how we live. For Jesus' sake, amen.